every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd. He's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I am your host, Brian Carney. This is a show where I get to interview business owners about the journey through entrepreneurship while I get to sample a beer I've never had before and give it a rating at the end. Sometimes my favorite part, to be honest. Uh, My guest today is David Weaver. David is a franchising expert that focuses on teaching clients the secrets of starting, growing, and exiting a profitable franchise business in the United States. He's helped over 150 business owners through their franchising experience. We've actually never had anyone on the show to talk about franchising, so I'm really excited to talk to David today. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm the only franchise guy. That's Yeah, cool. you're the only franchise guy. So for our conversation today, I'm going to be drinking, it's called Fatigue Lager, F-T-I-G, uh, from Snitz Creek Brewery in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. A friend of mine, Tim McAllister, thank you, Tim, gave this to me a couple of weeks ago, so I was saving it to be able to try on the podcast. Now, you are out in Colorado, so that's a great beer mecca, if you will. What are you going to be drinking today? I figured uh, I, I'm not super creative, but I've got an avalanche here. So Breckenridge Brewery is a great brewery and, you know, a, uh, I like amber. So avalanche is a good choice in Colorado. And so there you go. Love it. That's great. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about your business and what you do. Uh, so my business is kind of threefold. I like, um, you know, as you've, I shared with you earlier, I've owned multiple different kinds of businesses, et cetera. So today, what I tell people, like, what do you do? Yeah. Um, I'm in the franchise space. I invest in franchise assets, real estate assets, and I'm a franchise consultant. So I help people identify the right franchise to invest in based upon their investment criteria, et cetera, that I help them sort of develop and clarify. Um, And I also like to invest in franchise companies because that's a different, I consider a consulting business and an operating business, different kinds of businesses. So it keeps it interesting. Um, I also invest in real estate because that's my dad told me when I was a kid, uh, you know, real wealth in this country is built in three asset classes. He talked about a three-legged stool. Yeah. Um, I think our, you know, we are educated that a diversified portfolio means stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Yeah. Um, my dad's comment was real wealth in this country is created in paper assets, stock market. Yep real estate and business assets. Yep. And so if you can invest in those three, you're going to, you're going to hit the ground running a lot harder and a lot faster. So that's what I try to do. That's great. I I love that, uh, that idea that that is true diversification where you're not only diversifying between the different types of assets uh, classes you have inside your stock portfolio, but other hard assets and then business. And typically if you run a successful business, that's going to get your highest ROI. So that's great. 
That's right. The businesses generate the cash and the, the real estate in my mind is like a savings account. Somebody's paying your mortgage, but you don't cash flow a whole bunch. So yeah. you know, that's just a smart place to put money. And it's also kind of a fun project. You know, you get to remodel and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, paper assets are to me just, you know, set it, forget it and try not to pay, pay too much attention when the market is having a fun time like it is right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, t- how did you get into this? How, how do you become a franchising expert and what's your background? So good question. Um, I got into franchising because I worked for a non-bank lender uh-huh. and that uh, Peter was the owner of that company. And he hired me to, because he couldn't find anybody to penetrate the franchise space he had purchased a big lease portfolio from Quiznos on their point of sale systems, kind of uncovered this is a pretty good space to, you know, just take pieces and parts of these thousands of individual locations. But underwriting a startup company is a whole different thing than like, you know, trying to lend money on a mini excavator or something like that. Right. Yeah. Company. Um, and so I just was like, this is pretty interesting. I could do that. Right. And, and I'm, I wanted to, I took the job with the lending company after coming out of the foundry experience, working in the family business. And frankly, I, I knew that, let me get, let me go backwards a little bit. Grew up in Indiana, went to Indiana business school, corporate America job, a couple of other sales and project management type jobs that, and I'm in Colorado, my dad, this is late nineties. My dad, um, bought a retirement business. We, mm-hmm. I grew up in the foundry business. We made car parts oh, cool. for General Motors and Chrysler. Um, that business got sold off in the early 90s by kind of the mid to late 90s. My dad got into this retirement foundry, which was a smaller um, high copper alloy foundry that made spot welding gun parts for the auto plants. So oh. what is a spot welding gun? It is a big robotic machine that puts the um, spot welds, it puts the sheet metal onto the car frame. So cool. think of like a door panel, right? You've got this big door panel and the, a robot with a panel comes in, puts them together and the spot welding comes around and, and um, you know, spot welds. Yeah. These big jaws are what we made. They were copper because they needed to be high, uh, high conductivity because electricity flows through. That's how you weld. Yeah. But they also need to be strong. So they had beryllium and chromium and nickel in them, um, which is a big science project, but basically strength and and electronic conductivity. So it was pretty cool because it was complex. Yeah. Um, and I call that that my real life at MBA because I learned <laughs> a lot in a short period of time running that that uh, facility. Um, I have a uh, have you seen Tommy Boy, the movie Tommy Boy? I've, I've seen Tommy Boy. Yeah. I've, I have the that factory where Tommy has no idea what's going on. That would be me inside <laughs> that factory with spot welding. So that that's what I, the mental image I had there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the the corporate or the like General Motors manufacturing plants are really, really slick and clean yeah. looking, um, like an Amazon distribution center. You see right. those commercials all the time. Um, a foundry, however, is not clean. It <laughs> looks like, like black soot everywhere. It's kind of what most people would might think. The sand that we make to make the mold has oil and, and uh, clay in it to make it hard. Oh, and yeah. so everything's black, um, black sand everywhere. So um, at any rate, a foundry is 
not a great place to work. <laughs> um, but it was a good learning experience. So founder business to lending. Yeah, I knew I wanted to do two things. I was really put off with where America was going with manufacturing. So think, go back to 1995, 98, 2000. So I was in Detroit, like early 2000 to 2004. Um, and basically, I felt like, you know, our government, et cetera, had had offshored all the manufacturing, which is exactly what was going on. Yeah. Um, so if I'm projecting forward, I'm in my late 20s, early 30s. What does the next 30 years look like? Manufacturing is not where I want to be. So where do you want to be? Yeah, I wanted to be around small business because I yeah. feel like small business is as American as apple pie, right? Yeah. And and people love small business. I love small business and or real estate because you can't offshore dirt, right? So I'm going to either become a real estate guy somehow yeah. or I want to support small business. Um, that's how I landed in the finance space because our core customer was like 500,000 to a million five kind of small business owners. Um, yeah. And traditionally, they were not bankable with a traditional bank for whatever reason. So sometimes it's category, sometimes it's financials, et cetera. So think like landscape companies, banks don't like to do landscape. Sure. Yeah. They don't like restaurants. They don't like tree trimming companies are great. I think tree trimming guys are great, are really fun business owners. Yeah. And it's because those boom trucks are like dangerous. If you drive down the road, you can rip the, you know, the, so banks don't want any kind of rolling stock that's specialty. Yeah. And so I just learned all that. And that's how I made a living. I was like, anything a bank's not going to do, I'm going to figure out how to do it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so I spent basically six or seven years in the finance space. I learned how to underwrite financials and what businesses make money and don't make money. And I started this idea of what are the characteristics that make a business successful, right? Like number of employees compared to the revenue compared to, um, you know, is it a service-based business or is it a fixed retail or brick and mortar business? And it all started underwriting all these loans, right? Yeah. At the same time, he wanted me to learn franchising and or lend money in the franchise space. So I would put together financial programs for specific franchisors. So my job was to underwrite the franchisor. So what are like good franchisor versus a franchisor that has a bunch of lawsuits, right? Yeah. Super fun. It, Definitely. I, honestly, and you're getting great laugh. intel with that. It was so cool, right? Yeah. And I was like, the best part was, oh my God, you're, you're, this guy needs a loan for XYZ. I was like, and I'd read through it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you can make this much money doing that crazy thing. <laughs> like, so cool. Um, so yeah, I did that for a long time. Financial meltdown in 2008, 2009, our bank wasn't going to lend money to new businesses anymore. They actually cut our line of credit, uh, to our company, um, which changed the dynamic. So basically yeah. what I was good at, I wasn't going to get paid for anymore. Um, very, very turbulent times in terms of being in a, a small bank or a small lender. Um, and so, I got pushed out of my comfort zone. It was very clear to me. It was time to do your own thing. Yeah. And that's what I did. So um, I looked at under, I underwrote, I don't know, 19 to 20 deals in 2009 while I was still working with Peter, pretty open with him what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and looked at private equity. I looked at angel investors. I looked at bank owned assets. Like I was covering the gamut. Sure. Um, and ultimately, uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, you know, I had a bunch of franchisors that needed a vice president of sales because I was very invested in the franchise space. And he says, 
if you're going to sell franchises, why wouldn't you consider franchise consulting? And I was like, I will consider what is it? And, <laughs> oh, that's and a so, thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and basically you're, I'm, I'm the mirror image of a franchise salesperson. I'm on the other side, counseling and coaching the candidate on what franchise to look at, to, to look at and why. And so I have relationships with over 200 different brands. Wow. And, and so I would work with you if you're the candidate to say, what do you want to accomplish? Like, let's not focus on the widget or the brands yet. Let's sure. focus on what business you want to be in and why and talk about all these business characteristics that I was referring to. Um, it makes for a much better research process. It makes for a much clearer understanding of what you're trying to accomplish or get out of yeah. owning a franchise. Um it's a total blast. I, the franchise consulting is fun. Owning franchises and real estate is is to build wealth. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So do you have, when people hire you, is there a commonality where they go, I can't do this corporate America thing anymore. I want to own my own company. I just need some guidance and direction of what to do. Is that how that typically works? Or is it a little different than that? That is that is a very common connection point. Yeah. So yeah, um, I would say... For me personally, I like working with with successful entrepreneurs, and and um, franchising is a great sort of second business or investment yeah. for an entrepreneur that's very successful. Uh, those guys are a blast to work with. We also get to play in sort of the higher end investment ranges and and some interesting options that most people don't have the capital to do. Yeah. So I would say thirty percent of my particular businesses successful entrepreneurs that are looking for a second investment, serial entrepreneurs. Typically it's the entrepreneur that's very successful. And then they're like, what else do I do? I already have a couple of rental properties. I have yeah. the, place the beach, but I have, I'm making more money than I'm you, than I know what to do with really. And they know how to run a business. They like building teams. They're already good at sales and marketing. So they can step into a franchise and very quickly get that thing going because they've, they don't have to build the systems and, and figure it out. Yeah. So that's really fun. 70% of my candidate looks like what you're talking about, which is um, successful corporate executive, um, typically director level and above, um, you know, med device salespeople, sure. engineers, things like that. Um, they tend to be sort of middle management. And um, this, this sort of economic, the beginnings of this economic downturn is actually a really strong indicator for my business. Because what happens is we have mergers and acquisitions and the middle sure. guy gets squeezed out. He didn't do yeah. anything wrong. He hit his numbers. He, you know, and or she has a wonderful reputation in her industry. And just because senior management got turned over, she's out on the street. She doesn't know why. Right. Yep. Um, and so then they start getting introspective. Like, do I want to spend another 10 years or 20 years doing the same thing? So somebody else can yeah. turn me loose because Today I'm 47, but in five years, I'm going to be, you know, I'm approaching mid fifties and yep. all of a sudden I become less and less attractive to upper management. That happens again. Yeah. And, and, and believe me, I've been doing this for over a decade and I see it. People come yep. back to me, you know, Hey, I, I got cold feet. I'm not ready to do it. I'm 47. They come back at 52 and they're like, man, I should have done it back when I was 47. Right. Yeah. Um, it, because the, the cycle is just repeating itself faster with shorter windows yep. in the corporate world for, for some people. Now, you know, I'm a clearly a small business guy, but there's nothing wrong with corporate America. But at some point, um, people see themselves 
the writing on the wall, target on their back. I've I've heard it all, right? Hit their head on the glass ceiling, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like that, I I can see where I can go, and it's nowhere good for me. Yeah, right. They're going to stay there forever. So there's and so that's a candidate that's really really good. They they know how to build teams. They understand P and L responsibility. They know how to drive sales. They they're in a position in their career where they don't feel like they need to ask for permission. They already know what to do. Yep. And they love franchising because they can step into and somebody's going to guide them first do A, then do B, then do C. This is the data to support the decisions you need to make. Yeah. And those people become wildly successful very, very quickly. But franchising is not for everybody. Business ownership is tough. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why the rewards are pretty appealing if you can be good at it. No, for sure. So how are you able to help people figure out a, if franchising is a good thing for them and B, which Avenue to go down, how can you help them model that out and and figure out which model is best for them? Uh, great question. Um, I would say the first, I'm going to answer that in two ways. Uh, The first way, kind of more vague. I, Again, I've been doing this for a long time, and I, I will just now openly say people fall into three buckets, right? Okay. You're either an employee or you're an entrepreneur, yep. and the person in the middle is a franchise owner, huh? right? And so the employee just doesn't have the risk tolerance. He doesn't have the ability to say, I'm going to write a $100,000 check, and this is my future. Yep. They just can't do it, and that's Okay. So my process is designed to put somebody in a position where they actually make that decision. Mm-hmm. And I can coach them through that. And, you know, we talk a lot about business owners mindset versus employee mindset versus, um, you know, and, and risk-taking behavior. And um, what does that look like? Because I think a lot of employees see business owners as these crazy risk-takers that jump off a cliff without a parachute and all that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that that's true. I don't think um, knowing all of the people that I know that own businesses, owning a business should be a logical next step. They are very calculated decisions based upon very good information and it should feel logical and normal. Yep. And also pretty scary, right? So the the fear is going to be there. If it's not there, then there's something wrong with you, right? Yep. So um, jumping, you know, getting into the unknown or whatever is always a bit scary, but that's where the fun's at. That's where the, that's where the juice in life is at. If you're sure. a guy like me. Yep. Um, and so if that turns you on, you're probably a franchisee or an entrepreneur. So the entrepreneur is the guy that wants to build a business and he wants to come up with the good ideas. And it's very important to that guy to name his business, to pick the colors on his logo, to build every aspect of his website because the messaging has to be just right because I've got a unique idea that's new and different and special. And that guy tends to build his business or her business around her and and her personality and her skills and abilities. And and she hires people like her or he, right? And so that's great. Being an entrepreneur is the most fun in the world because you own, you make every decision and you own every decision, as yep. I said, right? The flip side of freedom and control is responsibility. So yeah. <laughs> you have the freedom to do whatever the hell you want. And that yep. is true. And you pretty much have to own every decision because yep. they cost money, right? Yeah. Like bad decisions are expensive. Um, so... The franchise owner is the employee guy that likes the structure of the corporate world that they've been in for 20 plus years, 
but they no longer want the, the permission granting and the decision making and whatever. And they just want, give me the legs, get out of the way. Let me yeah. do it. Right. Like they, they know they're going to work hard. They're not afraid of sales. They like building teams and, and they don't want to do, this is my personal opinion. They don't want to do the work. They want to build a team to do the work. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference between that. I talk to people about the owner's role, the owner operators, the guy that wants to do the work. Yep. And the absentees, the, the semi-absentee manager run or executive owner, the executive owner wants to do the work for like a year, but with only the intention of hiring and training and Some getting out of the, of the day, day to day. Right. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what I teach and guide. Like we'll ask a lot of questions around what that looks like so that we can really get somebody clear on where they want to be um, and the investment range that, that goes with that. Because if you're an executive owner, you're going to start doing it yourself. Your initial investments lower then if you're going to hire a high caliber general manager, you're going to, your initial investment's got to be higher, yep. right? And because you're not doing it, you're relying on somebody else to do it. You probably need to account for more working capital to make sure that you've got enough budget to, to get yourself to, you know, speed to break even and all that. Yeah, for sure. So when you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but you, you know, sometimes you see any business owner make bad decisions. What are some of the common mistakes that you see franchise uh, owners make in their process? Mm, I would say uh, to keep it simple, because there's a whole bunch of them, right? Yeah. Um, it, once you're a franchise owner, and I would say this is a franchise, non-franchise business owners, it's very difficult to commit to the marketing that's necessary to drive your customer acquisition. And it's also very difficult to hire ahead of your revenue. Yeah. So that's so right, true. Yet, as a bit, I tell this people, say this to people all the time. In a good franchise system, which there are a bunch of bad franchise systems out there. So, assuming that you found a good one and that they cover the bases, really what you need to do is focus on people. You have to find great customers that love you and want to come back over and over again. And you have to find really good employees that love those customers and make them want to come back over and over again, right? Yeah. So, if you can focus on the people part, let the franchise or focus on the system part. It's a pretty fun, pretty fun equation. Yep. So what's the hard part? And most entrepreneurial businesses do a really bad job of this. Spending enough money on marketing and branding and brand awareness and getting in the community. And so what does that look like? It looks like, you know, some people are uncomfortable putting up a pop-up tent at a, we owned an elements massage. We had a couple of elements massage locations. So a marketing tactic was to go to races like 10 Ks and five Ks and half marathons. Makes we sense. In Colorado, right. Yeah. And, and then we would have therapists there and give little massages and whatever. And that, you know, so touching the community, you got to be out and do, you know, do things. Yeah. You know, so they don't spend enough time doing that. They don't spend enough money on, you know, a lot of digital marketing has kind of taken over. So, but you'd be surprised at how much you spend on Google AdWords and whatever. And if you yeah. don't, it simply doesn't work, right? So there's, you have to overspend to then throttle back to figure out, but, you know, most people don't spend enough, so it doesn't even start working. So then that was a waste of money. So I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So that's a big one. Spend enough money on marketing and brand awareness and getting people to know where you're at. Yep. And then hiring good people, which means you got to typically spend mon- more money than you have and hiring them ahead of the revenue. Yeah. Um, it's scary. That's why it's hard to do. 
it's funny that that theme has come up time and time again on this podcast. It's that most entrepreneurs, <clears throat> once they finally make the decision, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm I've figured out I can build this mousetrap better than than you know the place I was working at before. They get to a point where they go, they're so conscious about cash flow that they will hire six to twelve months later than they should. It's almost like you need to be. You're, it's better off to be three months early than it is to be six months late. Yep. And um, that's, that is so true and so hard. So that's, that's so a hard. common mistake. The other thing that I hear all the time, and this is executives and business owners alike, is the old adage that slow to hire, quick to fire is crazy true, right? Yeah. So which now, if you put those two things together, you're, you're a double whammy because you want to make sure that you're making a slow methodical hire, but you should have started that a year ago, not right? And so it's, it's a challenge. Um, it is such a challenge. That's such yeah. a great point. Now, I think one of the things that seems attractive to me about business ownership, now I, I, I talk about this book a lot, The E-Myth, where most people don't set out to actually become entrepreneurs and start a business. They work somewhere and go, I can do it better than this guy's doing, right? Yeah. But I do think there's that certain slice of people and franchisees, I think, or franchise owners, would this makes sense. They go, I know I want to be a business owner. I don't want to build all the systems and processes from scratch. They're already built here in this franchise. So I'd imagine that would be a pretty attractive reason to become a franchise owner. That what I love franchising for a couple of reasons, but that's one of them. Um, I've always felt like I'm not the creative guy that's going to come up with the Rubik's cube. Right. right. <laughs> right. I just dated myself for 50% of your audience. <laughs> but, um, I'm, I'm not that guy, right? I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not, uh, you know, pick a name. Um, but I, but I understand business pretty well. And I know, and, and I know that I will work hard enough to make it work, et cetera. So I can do it. Yeah, that's that's the franchise uh, owner. The other thing that I love about franchising and um, is and I've owned multiple different kinds of businesses, franchise and non-franchise um, is I love um, I'm a bit ADHD. I think I, yeah. my my little sister was very um, you know hyperactive, et cetera. But um, I what I know now and I'm, I'm approaching 50, so I've got enough experience, but I'm also pretty young in terms right. of I, I got a lot more gas in the tank. Um, I know that I really like a three to five year project, oh. right? And, and three to five years is a really good time frame to ramp a business up and get it profitable and create some asset value and then sell it at a multiple of earnings. And so what I love about franchising is and the reason I throw out the ADHD is because I get bored pretty quick. As soon as sure. the business is running super smooth, like I, I start getting antsy and then nothing for me to do here. There's nothing for me to do. <laughs> so then, and this is the this happens with entrepreneurs all the time. You start tweaking things that shouldn't be messed with, right? Exactly. You're like, oh, I'm gonna tweak this and add more money here and you know, skin what and it's like quit messing with it. It's totally yep. working, right? For me, that's time to sell and do something different. So, you know, I told you I was in the foundry business, heavy manufacturing. I sold elevators and escalators for a big uh, right out of college. Um, I sold interior design and de decor fabrication for grocery stores and drugstores for a while. Um, intentionally doing different things to build sort of this inventory of business knowledge, just because yeah. that was my, my idea. Um, I've owned a decorative concrete company. I've owned a bar on DU's campus. I've owned a, a bunch of different real estate businesses, but they were just, you know, holding companies. So they don't, I don't think those count. Um, and, you know, the elements massage business. And now I'm in the pet business and the a franchise in California. So 
Um, none of that goes together. Right. Except all of it goes together because it's customer acquisition, operational excellence, financial performance. If you yep. just stay in those three buckets, it's not and that tough. You can repeat that across any sort of sector. That's right. And and then the key is finding your, I call the, I call employees in different industry segments characters, right? Mm-hmm. So like the massage therapist character was similar and or different than the foundry molder. A molder is a very specific and really hard guy to hire. Yeah. Um, but a molder thinks and acts much like a massage therapist in that they're very proud of their work. They're very creative. Um, you wouldn't think that a molder in a foundry is a creative thinker, but they're really, really smart, creative guys, right? Yeah. Um, in a really crazy, dirty environment. So um, identify your character and find the good ones. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you're in a foundry, massage therapy, or laying concrete. Um, they're all it applies kind of everywhere. Yeah. You just have to know what to look for. Right? Yeah. Now, you mentioned something that, that I didn't actually think of with franchises before we, you know, I was preparing for this, this conversation. I don't know why it never dawned on me that you could run a franchise for three to five years, seven years, whatever, and then exit it and sell it to someone else. I don't know why that never occurred to me, but you know, there's a guy here in Delaware who owns something like 12 or 15 McDonald's, right? He bought them from someone. Not every one of them is, is, you know, is, is started from scratch. So long way, long winded way to say, how do you guide someone through making sure it's the right time for them to sell their franchise? So um, I work primarily with people on the front end, right? Helping them get into the business, et cetera. I don't really do the exit, but as part of the plan, yeah, you want to know what your entrance plan is, what your operational plan is, and what your exit plan is. So gotcha. you talk about, um, and for some candidates are more interested in that than others, I have done it myself, yeah. build, you know, buy, build and sell. Um, so what I think what you're talking about is what I refer to as the game within the game, which is another reason why I'm a huge franchise fan. So the game within the game looks like this. Um, and, and candidates will say, well, what if it doesn't work out? And, and what's the downside if it doesn't work out, right? Yeah. Um, that happens. Not everybody is a successful franchise owner and not everybody is suited for franchising that decides to buy a franchise. Right? Sure. Um, and then a different candidate will say, I want to build lots of these and I want to scale very, very quickly. So this is the game within the game. This is just my verbiage. I just kind of made this up. Sure. Um, you have to be a franchisee in your market, Delaware for you, Denver for me, right? Um, to be on the inside of the game, right? Mm-hmm. So here's an example. We entered elements with, uh, we bought two locations from one franchise owner. Um, I knew that adjacent to his two locations, there was another woman that had two locations that weren't performing very well. So I knew that I was going to buy these two And then probably 12 months later, I needed to fix them up and get them. And then I was going to buy the the other two that would get me to four. And then I was going to open a third location, or I'm sorry, the fifth location um, over. And that would give over in Parker, which would give me the Southern band of Denver Metro, right? That was my plan. And knowing that once you have five open locations, your exit looks different because now you have a more sophisticated buyer. That buyer looks like, I own 10 Burger Kings and I'm, and I want to diversify and get in the massage business or whatever. Right. I own 
Orange Theory and massage and yoga are good good compliments to that. So um, that was my strategy. Thirty days after we bought, somebody else bought uh, the two that I wanted to buy. Oh later, no! Right? <laughs> so pivot the conversation. Um, getting this is the game within the game. I'm an unsuccessful franchisee. Guess what? Everybody knows that you're unsuccessful and there's somebody that is successful. He's your number one buyer. Yeah. So that's the short answer to how do you get out of this thing without, you know, losing your complete shirt? You go to the most successful guy in the market and you're like, we buy me out of this, right? And what that does is get you out of your lease commitment with the landlord, et cetera, if you're fixed retail. So that's, that is great for both parties, right? Because you can, you can um, easily exit quickly. If you're the guy that wants to expand quickly, that's how you do it. You you quickly identify who are the weak links and let them know if you're ever interested. If this is not working out for you, I'll make it easy, right? Yeah. So give them a safety uh, Zach, net to fall. Yeah. So yeah. so Zach was the guy that purchased the other two. Frankly, he was more sophisticated than I was. He was a Barclays, ran a team, a 200 global team, super <laughs> Stanford grad, like big brain on Brad, super and a great guy, right? Really yeah. great guy, really smart. He sends out an email to all the franchisees. He says, Hey, my wife and I are ready to open our third location. Before we sign a letter of intent with the landlord, does anybody want to sell? Right? Yeah. Out to 11 owners. And my response, I don't know why I was copied on it because my wife was kind of the point of contact. I was copied on the email. I responded to him, Hey, Zach, the Weaver assets are always for sale. Right. Yeah. Then when my wife got home, I said, hey, honey, I was just kidding. Zach sent out the email. Did you see it? Yeah, I saw it. I didn't mean it, but I just figured I'd throw it out there. Why not? See what, yeah, just see what would happen. She was like, if you could sell the Highlands Ranch, Highlands Ranch location tomorrow, I wouldn't even care. I was like, honey, you did all the hard work. Like, why? We're not selling. There, I was just kidding. Yeah. She's like, I'm not. Like, go ahead and get rid of it. <laughs> much rather focus on one. This is too much headache. I don't want to do it. Whatever. Like she just was in a point where she didn't want to do it. 45 days later, we sold Zach our location. It was done deal. 45 days. Amazing. I love franchising for that. Now, that's not typical. That's not normal. That's my own personal experience. Yeah, sure. But the point is the game within the game is pretty fun. The only way that you can play that game is to be on the inside. And and that's what's super fun about franchising. So I've got friends of mine in um, a fitness concept that has to do with cycling. He he acquired 17 locations in 18 months. People were going, and he was buying them all over the place. And that's you know, crazy. Kinda, yeah, multiple states, multiple cities. Um, that's a fast way to get a lot of locations, right? Yeah, I'd say. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens in downturns. I can tell you that people, there are a lot of retail brands where people were not, the business was not beat up. The owners were just sick of COVID. Sure. Yeah. There was a lot of opportunity in the last year. And I'm telling you with the net, you know, if if you made it through COVID and now you see this economic downturn and you just don't have the stomach for it. But say, this is enough. I want out. Yeah. And there's nothing against those people that it's been tough. But that's opportunity for the entrepreneur. Agreed. What are some of the, uh, I do find the the nature of franchises interesting and, and some are super popular and they fall out of popularity. What are some of the most popular uh, franchises that people are calling saying, hey, I think I want to buy one of these? Oh, wow. I've been doing this for a long time, Brian. So that's really difficult to answer because it, it pivots. Um, I would say if I go back to 2015. Yeah. 
Um, I know the Orange Theory area developers for Colorado. Um, they they bought early on and yeah. super good people. Um, Wendy was just sharp. Um, they bought the whole state of Colorado. Wow. And, and then they sold. So air developer buys the rights to a big area like DFW or half of Chicago or the state of Colorado, whatever. And then they sub franchise or they sell the franchises to the actual franchisees. And then they also coach and mentor. So they act like a go between, between the franchise or, and the franchisee. Yeah. Um, some brands have grown that way. Most don't anymore because private equity sort of they're interested in buying franchises very much now. And yeah. they, the area developer adds a, uh, a problem. So I want to buy an orange theory because my wife goes there and loves it. Right. Sure. Okay. Well, orange theory is already sold out in all of Denver. So what else do you want to look at? Well, I don't, I want to look at an orange theory. Right. So one of the things I do as a consultant is I know what's going, you know, what markets are closed and what are open. And then I can say, okay, what are the things you like about Orange Theory? Well, I like the technology advantage that they have. They were kind of the first ones to do the heart monitor. Oh, yeah. right? So now that's not very much of an advantage because everybody does that, but that was that was innovative. Um, what And the consumer thinks that that's the reason that Orange Theory is successful. That is not the reason they're successful. They are pre-opening sales and marketing process was bulletproof. I mean- uh. Awesome. Franchisees opened and they were profitable very quickly, which oh, is wow. why they grew so fast because, right? So that's, um, I don't want to digress. I want to answer your question. So um, Orange Theory fit Fitness was is, is a big one. Poke Bowls were a big one for a while. Sure. Um, that's kind of, that was, came and went really fast, like Poke, <laughs> poke Bowl, which I knew it would, by the way, but I just, I, um, Crumble wow. Cookie, everybody loves. And I love to eat them too. And yeah. I'm telling you, if you read the story on Krispy Kreme, it's the same. Again, my opinion, I'm just one guy. <laughs> but if you understand the story of Krispy Kreme, you will understand what is going to happen with cookie crumble. Oh. Crumble cookie. Um, it's just, it just is. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So, but that's just my personal opinion. Um, they make good cookies. People love them. Uh, one of the one of a uh, franchise brand that my wife and kids loved in grade school. And by the way, if you have kids in grade school, go buy a box of these things and give them to the teachers because like, <laughs> nothing bunt cakes, nothing bunt cakes, not a business I would own. Yeah, this is actually a conversation between my wife and I. Honey, that's a good business to be a consumer of, or that's the one we should invest in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those are two totally two, different two, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so smoothies, juice, juice bars, that's a consumer-based business. Don't buy those. This yeah. is David Weaver's opinion. So I don't want to be, but um, yeah, nothing but cakes is just a great business to be a consumer of and to buy the cakes, the little teachers, right? For the teachers. They I love, it. love those things. Um I got two questions. I got two questions uh, left. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, I would imagine the outlay that a franchisee has to pay to buy a franchise has to be a pretty big hurdle rate for them. How do you guide a new franchise owner in getting off to a fast start so they can sort of alleviate that worry? Uh, it starts with the number one, so I have a financial budget conversation. So, you know, what is your not to exceed number? Yeah. Um, most people don't know this. There are franchise brands that are under a hundred thousand. Oh, wow. 
and they are go up to, you know, this is my, my particular inventory of 200 under a hundred thousand over three and a half million. Right. Okay. So big, big range there. Yeah. You can have bigger investments than 3 million. There are franchise brands that are, you know, less nah, not ones that you want to invest in, <laughs> but so conversation is, where's your comfort zone? You know, is it 200 or 500 or 800, right? Of the big number, how much cash are you willing to put in there? So yep. that we can make sure that that balances up with what the SBA is going to look for and where the lendings are, lending programs are. The, the number one thing I want people to wrap their head around is speed to break even. Some business models naturally break even very quickly. And yeah. what I mean by break even is Revenue minus expenses equals profit, right? Yep. So I'm not talking about when you get your initial investment back and I'm not talking about how much you can pay yourself on a salary. I'm simply talking about you're no longer losing money. Yeah, okay. okay. Very important. Um, and, and this is super important because um, certain models cash flow quickly and some models take a long time to cash flow. Mm -hmm. um, and so I really spend a lot of time on this because what... What I'm asking sounds like a math equation. Right. If you burn $10,000 a month and your break even is in six months, then you need to have $60,000 in working capital, right? Yep. That's a math equation. Pretty simple. I can put it together. It's a spreadsheet. I'm good. The question I'm really asking is an emotional question. Yeah. What I'm asking is when are you going to be so wrapped up about the fact that you're burning 10 grand a month that you start making money decisions, not business decisions? Such a great way to put it. It's That's so true, right? Such and a great way to put it. If you start getting sideways in your brain, your business doesn't have a chance. So yep. I want to make sure whatever you tell me, I have relative confidence that this franchise system can get you to where you need to be. So if you're telling me I'm good for 12 to 18 months, I'm looking at brands that are that are nine to 12 months, right? Yeah. If you're because I can't ensure anybody's success. I've tried. I, I used to think that that was something that I should pay attention to. It's not my responsibility. I've, it's yep. been tough. But I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to get people to at least be aware of the things they need to pay attention to. This is a big one. If you can't get to break even or cash flow positive, you're, you've just put a bunch of money down our sinkhole because yeah. you, you're not going to continue. Um, and you know, getting, and then the last financial thing is like, what's a sexy return on investment? Because some people get into the business thinking about the widget. I really like, you know, chicken sandwiches. So I should buy a Chick-fil-A Yeah, and, and expecting to make a 20% EBITDA when a business model doesn't have a chance to make 10. Right. So now you've, you know, you're six years in business, you're making a 7% return and you're kicking yourself because you feel like a loser. Yep. When that business was only ever going to make 12, yeah. right? So, and you're producing 11. And so you should be super happy because you're doing about as good as you can possibly do. Yeah. 20 is right? impossible. And yeah, no, that it's makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Right. And, and other business models, like if you're not doing 20 to 25, you're missing the mark. Like you really are doing something wrong because they just naturally make more money. So sure. How do you know what that equation looks like? You got to cover a lot of different aspects. Yeah. And that's what I try to help people do. That's the full shark tank. That's knowing your numbers, making sure you, you <laughs> your numbers are right. That's right. Mr. Wonderful what? asked one question and I stole it from him because I believe smart people steal smart ideas. Absolutely. Um, Mr. Wonderful always asks, do, do you know what is his number one question? Um, he does always ask what, no, I don't know. 
He always asks, what is your customer acquisition cost? Uh. And I stole that one. So um, as I'm telling people, teaching people how to validate or talk to franchise owners to get the good numbers and understand, get a data sample so you can understand what the numbers really are. Yeah. I walk people through a process on how to do that. Um, starting with sales and marketing and, and then getting into operational excellence and hiring and processing and then standardized financials. I won't go into it. The two things I want you to focus on on sales and marketing questions are what is your customer acquisition cost? How much money do you actually need to spend on marketing? Yep. And what what does the franchisor require in their item six and eight, which is identifies how much money you should be spending on marketing? And then how much money are franchisees actually spending every month? And is there a delta there? And what does that tell you? So then we have a conversation about that. So what do you spend every month? But also, what do you need to be doing? You as the owner, how much time involvement are you spending on customer acquisition, finding and attracting customers? Because from my perspective, Marketing is very expensive, but super easy to execute, especially mm-hmm. in a franchise system because they have a back, most of them have back office software where you click and point and it, it gets done. Mailers and processes in place. Yeah. Yep. Sales, in my opinion, is very inexpensive if you're the guy doing the sales and you own the company, right? Yep. But it takes a lot of time. You're going to networking meetings, you're shaking hands and kissing babies and getting people to know you. Every business needs both. Yep. But some businesses are marketing driven and some businesses are sales driven. And you need to understand which one you want to be doing. Yeah. So that you will actually be doing it. Does that yeah, make sense? That makes a ton of sense. That, that, <laughs> that's great advice. So one final question. So you're, you're, you live in Colorado and I understand that you hella ski. I like to ski. Yep. So does, now, does this mean you're jumping out of helicopters and going down or does this mean you get taken up? with a helicopter to get out and ski down. Either sounds insane to me, but to explain that to me a little bit. It's, you're, it's you're the ski. second one. Most people have this idea that you're like, you're like parachuting yeah. out of a helicopter. In that's, a, that's what I thought at first. <laughs> um, but, but heli skiing is, ba- is skiing in the back country without, you know, without a chairlift and, you know, the, the runs are not groomed. It's just like, so it's all about snow conditions and it's all about being able to ski in all snow conditions. That's yeah. basically heli skiing. Um, it is thrilling, exciting to fly in helicopters because they are dangerous. Yeah. Um, the uh, I took my wife on on a heli skiing trip in 2015. Uh, she did phenomenal. She's a very very good skier. Doesn't give herself enough credit. Um, the first day was a bit daunting. She was. I didn't realize that how much angst she had about the whole helicopter thing. Yeah. Um, but the very first thing they do is they talk. Now, this is this particular place. The lodge is remote. So you take a bus to a parking lot, literally on some guy's farm. And it's like a gravel parking lot. And they <laughs> park there. And you're like, what are we doing? Where are we? Right. Helicopter comes over the ridge, lands right next to the uh, bus. People get off the helicopter. People get on the helicopter. Seven to 15 minute flight to the lodge. And you shuttle back and forth till everybody is where they need to be. Wow. So the first day is this avalanche training. Don't get killed by the helicopter rotors. And by the way, we're so remote that the, that if this place catches on fire, it's going to burn to the ground. So um, (laughs) we don't smoke in the lodge and be very conscious of what's going on with the helicopter, et cetera. And um, this is, and then you do a full avalanche um, 
the consideration and beacons and the whole thing. So it's actually super safe. Um, it's remarkably fun and it's like nothing in the world. It's I just, can't even it, imagine. Yeah. It's pretty That's awesome. awesome. Love it. Well, David, this was great. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. If people want to learn a little bit more about you, uh, where, where can they find you? Um, my website is called www.franchiseyourfreedom.com. Okay. Uh, and my email is dweaver at franchise.com. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me is shoot me an email and let's set up a time to talk. Perfect. Love it. And if you want to connect with me on the Untapped app where you can see what I rate these beers that we drink, my username is brcarney7. To learn more about how our firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. Moment of truth, fatigue lager, Snitz Creek Brewery. I liked it. I could drink a couple of these. Three out of five, I would give it. Okay. That's a pretty good rating. So three out of five is good. Yeah. Good, not great. Exactly. Exactly. Definitely will drink it again. But um, David, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Best of luck to you and cheers. Thank you. Cheers, Brian. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Happy Hip Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC.